Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Dr. Ali Town, a rising third-year pediatrics resident interested in neonatology fellowship. And I'm Rahul Demania, a third-year pediatric ICU fellow. And we are all coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's case is of a five-month-old X-28 week baby girl with abdominal distension. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A five-month-old X-28 week female with past medical history of severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia or BPD, pulmonary hypertension, home oxygen requirement, and G-tube dependence presents with hypoxemia and increased work of breathing to the pediatric intensive care unit. The patient has a history of prolonged NICU stay with about eight weeks of intubation. The patient developed worsening respiratory distress requiring increased support and eventual intubation for hypoxemic respiratory failure. The echo shortly after intubation showed worsened pulmonary hypertension with severe systolic flattening of the ventricular septum and a markedly elevated TR or tricuspid regurgitant jet. On exam, the patient had poor perfusion, and shortly after intubation, the patient was started on milrinone as well as a continuous infusion of epinephrine. The patient improved over the next few days. However, on hospital day three, was noted to have abdominal distension and increased FiO2 requirements, prompting a stat abdominal x-ray. The x-ray showed diffuse pneumatosis with portal venous gas. The patient was made NPO, and antibiotic therapy was initiated. So to summarize the key elements from this case, this patient has neck or necrotizing enterocolitis. So necrotizing enterocolitis is not a homogenous disease, but rather a collection of diseases with pretty similar phenotypes. Certain people will split neck into two categories, the big ones being cardiac neck and then inflammatory neck. In our case, this kiddo who has a history of prematurity and then additionally some pretty severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia, we would kind of group into the more cardiac neck bucket. Babies who develop cardiac neck tend to be significantly older than babies who develop inflammatory neck, so about one month versus two weeks of age. There are three main contributory factors to the development of neck, and that includes gut prematurity, abnormal bacterial colonization, and then ischemia reperfusion injury, with the latter being kind of the most implied in cardiac neck. In many cases result from an ischemic insult to the bowel, which then causes translocation of the intraluminal bacteria into the wall of the bowel, but the complete etiology and course of neck can be very variable from patient to patient. This translocation can cause sepsis and death, and the ischemia of the bowel can result in intestinal perforation and or necrosis. That was a great introduction. And just to summarize, neck is one of the most common gastrointestinal emergencies in the newborn infant. It is actually estimated to occur in 1 to 3 per 1,000 live births. More than 90% of cases occur in very low birth weight infants, usually less than 1,500 grams. They also occur in very premature infants, less than 32 weeks gestation. And the incidence of neck decreases with increasing gestational age and birth weight. So you can think of these as inversely proportional risk factors. Speaking of risk factors, 
Allie, do you mind going through some key risk factors for the development of NEC? Sure. So some key risk factors for the development of neck include prematurity and birth weight. So like we mentioned, the neck incidence is inversely proportional to gestational age. And then additionally, congenital heart disease. So congenital heart disease puts children at risk for neck due to a few things. The first would be decreased stroke volume. So again, if you have a congenital heart condition that impairs your heart's ability to adequately put out blood, that's going to increase your likelihood of ischemia of the bowel. Um, and therefore kind of increase your risk of neck. And then additionally, it would be improperly oxygenated blood that reduces your oxygen supply to your SMA or superior mesenteric artery, and then decreases your intestinal wall perfusion. So for all of those reasons, children with congenital heart disease are at an increased risk of neck. Secondarily, on repair of the cardiac lesion, patients often will develop a reperfusion injury due to their now markedly improved perfusion to their gut. This reperfusion can cause hyperinflammation via neutrophil activation, resulting in neck. That was a great overview of the risk factors. And I think that it's very apropos in our pediatric cardiac patients. Now, neck primarily occurs also in healthy, growing, and feeding very low birth weight preterm infants. It presents typically with sudden changes in feeding intolerance. So in the NICU, you may see increased gastric residuals. In the PICU, you may see feeding intolerance, etc. Now, these are going to be nonspecific signs. And additionally, these patients can have systemic signs, things like apnea, respiratory failure, poor feeding, lethargy, or even temperature instability. These nonspecific systemic signs coupled with abdominal signs, such as abdominal distension, bilious gastric retention, abdominal tenderness, rectal bleeding, and diarrhea should put on your differential very high necrotizing enterocolitis. Physical findings may include abdominal wall erythema, crepitus, and induration. However, these can be late findings. So Rahul, other than the immediate risk of death, what are some consequences of neck long-term? When it comes to neck, there are three major risk factors. Higher risk of malnutrition and short gut. Number two, bronchopulmonary dysplasia and number three, developmental delay. And in our case, bronchopulmonary dysplasia was seen in our index case. Ellie, what are some of the areas of current research and development on the topic of neck? Sure. So there are quite a few areas of research and development in neck. They include things like improved biomarkers for the early recognition of neck prior to the development of radiographic findings. Radiographic findings for neck are very frequently incredibly not specific. So there's always a question of stool versus pneumatosis. And so having an early biomarker for the early recognition of neck would be extremely helpful. Additionally, there's quite a bit of research being done about preventative measures and what we can do to stop babies from getting neck. And then kind of along the lines of research into the pathophysiology of neck, there's quite a bit of research being done about immune modulators of neck development. And kind of in that category, we talk a lot about underdeveloped adaptive immunity of the premature infant. Additionally, they talk about the fact that a lot of infants who develop neck, being that they're very premature, have a decreased exposure to the normal passive sharing of immune compounds between mother and baby. So for example, the IgG that is transferred to baby from mom occurs mostly in the third trimester. So for that reason, our very premature infants are kind of 
left out of that process and are not able to get that IgG. And then additionally, these babies who are often left NPO for periods of time or are receiving very small trophic feeds don't get anywhere near the amount of secretory IgA from breast milk um, that our term infants might receive. And then finally, there's some research into several additional cellular and cytokine-based changes that may increase the risk of neck, which are probably beyond the scope of our podcast, but there's quite a bit of research going into kind of cellular and cytokine-based changes. Awesome, Allie. And that gives us a great window into future research. Now, when we think about the diagnosis of neck at the bedside, we can think of neck as really a clinical diagnosis. And as we mentioned, we are going to be uh, looking for the presence of some subtle signs, as well as some characteristic clinical features. Those include things like abdominal distension, bilious vomiting, rectal bleeding, and the hallmark abdominal radiographic finding of pneumatosis intestinalis. Now, this finding is also commonly tested on the USMLE as well as your pediatric boards. Other important radiographic findings that we should mention are the presence of pneumoperitoneum as well as the sentinel loops or even portal venous gas. The definitive diagnosis of neck is made from either surgical or post-mortem intestinal specimens that demonstrate the histological findings of the pathophysiology, which you mentioned, Ali, inflammation, infarction, as well as necrosis. Now, obviously, a pathological diagnosis is not always possible, so we typically rely on these clinical features. So, Ellie, what are some of the currently favored preventative measures used to decrease the risk of neck in babies? Sure. So there are quite a few. Um, the first is probiotics. So research has found that babies with necrotizing enterocolitis have different underlying gut microbiomes than infants that do not develop necrotizing enterocolitis. And so kind of the underlying principle is that good bacteria, quote unquote good bacteria, prevent the overgrowth of the gram-negative enteric pathogens that may be causal for neck. Additionally, there's an increased risk in the development of neck between 30 and 32 weeks where they've noticed a uh, kind of concaminate change in the microbiome colonization. And then additionally, there's some suggestion that the good bacteria um, that we see in probiotic supplementation may downregulate the inflammatory response in the gut. All of that said, the dosing and the type of probiotic and other details of usage are still very up in the air and kind of individual practice dependent. And it is still not the standard of care in the United States, although in Europe, there certainly are countries in which it is the standard of care for infants in the NICU. The other kind of mainstay of preventative measures for necrotizing enterocolitis is using human milk over formula. So a 1990 study, which is kind of one of the earliest studies on this, demonstrated that the risk of neck is six to 10 times greater in formula-fed infants as opposed to those infants that receive breast milk. There are a lot of reasons why this might be the case, but one of the things is that secretory IgA from the breast milk may be protective as that adaptive immune system develops. Additionally, there's a thought that perhaps it's more easily digestible than other types of formula. So for that reason, using human milk over formula is shown to be protective. Awesome. Well, we talked about the risk factors. We talked about some diagnostic features. Let's go ahead and transition today's episode and talk about management. Ali, do you mind going through how neck is managed? Sure, absolutely. Neck is typically managed with the mainstay of gut rest, so making babies NPO and placing them on fluids. 
very frequently they'll get TPN because the NPO duration is long enough to kind of necessitate that additional nutrition. We also do gut decompression, which is typically with an Anderson tube to low intermittent suction to allow kind of the decompression of the gut. And then broad spectrum antibiotic coverage. Here at Chowa, we usually use bank and zosin, but it's slightly institutional dependent, just kind of depending on where you are. Neck is typically managed in conjunction with surgery as you kind of continually evaluate for need for surgical resection. Reasons why we might be more inclined for surgical resection would certainly be perforation or the pneumoperitoneum that Rahul mentioned earlier. Otherwise, management typically includes supportive care. Often they require increased respiratory support and TPN, like I mentioned earlier, given the length of NPO time. For deep, we talked a great deal about neck. However, can you provide some key differentials to consider? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Ellie. I mean, the differential diagnosis of neck includes other conditions that can cause rectal bleeding, abdominal distension, or intestinal perforation. These include spontaneous intestinal perforation of the newborn, infectious enterocolitis, and I may go and say that any cause of surgical abdomen in a baby can mimic neck. NAC is typically differentiated from these conditions by its characteristic uh, clinical features, like a healthy, growing, and feeding low-weight uh, preterm baby who presents with feeding intolerance and evidence of rectal bleeding and may have abdominal radiographic findings such as a pneumatosis intestinalis. The thing to do here is anytime you suspect a baby to have NAC, you want to make sure that you're not missing any other acute surgical abdomen in a baby at the same time. That was a great differential. Let's go ahead and summarize today's episode. Medical management for neck should be initiated promptly when neck is suspected. And in all infants with proven neck, the management is going to include two major tiers, supportive care as well as antibiotic therapy. Now, when it comes to supportive care, this includes bowel rest and decompression. When you're thinking bowel rest, consider discontinuing enteral intake. You also want to initiate parenteral nutrition at an optimal time, and then also correct any underlying metabolic, fluid electrolyte, and hematologic abnormality. You want to balance cardiac and respiratory function as you are focusing on gastrointestinal management. When it comes to antibiotic therapy, after obtaining appropriate specimens for culture, a course of parenteral antibiotics that cover a broad range of aerobic and anaerobic intestinal bacteria should be started. As Ali mentioned, VANC coupled with Zosin is going to be a management strategy, as well as ampicillin, gentamicin, and metronidazole. Those three antibiotics could be options. The clinical status is going to be monitored in these patients with frequent reevaluation, and you want to work very closely with your NICU or PICU pharmacist when you're dosing these antibiotics. Surgical intervention is going to be required either when intestinal perforation occurs or when there is unremitting clinical deterioration despite optimal medical management. And this suggests extensive and irreversible necrosis. And this, again, could be a early or late finding in necrotizing enterocolitis. This concludes our episode on neck. Special thanks to Dr. Ellie Town for her deep dive on this topic. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted 
by me, Pradeep Kamath and Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.